0: So this afternoon I'd like to speak and expand on one of the main themes uh, that Sylvie explored yesterday. So the theme of the talk today is phooey and wow. (laughs) Another way of saying that is I'd like to explore the nature and roots of suffering and the nature of roots and nature and roots of freedom. Really is a expression or really a finding of what we awaken to. When we asked that question, what do we awaken to fundamentally Two areas of insight how suffering occurs and how freedom occurs, how freedom manifests. And the teaching, which really brings out this exploration the most directly and fully, is the well-known teaching called the Four Truths or the Four Noble Truths or the Four Ennobling Truths. And it's one of um, many models that are given. It's probably the most uh, simple and direct. In our work with the 37 Wings of Awakening, In a sense, we clarify two most basic wings. If you can't imagine a bird with 37 wings, you can imagine a bird with two wings, and those two wings are basically wisdom and compassion. Understanding the nature of suffering, understanding the nature of freedom, and we grow in wisdom and compassion It's also, uh, to understand that is to understand wisdom, which is one of the 37 wings mentioned several times. It's also to clarify what's called right understanding, which is the whole beginning of the path. So we will um, interweave these teachings Uh, Many of you know the story of the Buddha when he was in the forest and picked up um, a bunch of leaves. And he asked his um, monks that were with him, which is more, the few leaves that I have picked up in my hand or those on the trees in the wood? And they answered correctly. (laughs) He said, very good. (laughs) He said, there are few in your hands and many in the trees. And he said, so too. What I have known by my own direct knowledge is more than I have given you. What I have given you are only a few teachings. And yet they are sufficient for liberation. And what have I given you? And he mentions, at that point, the four truths. And we can think of, we we know the, um, probably the core teaching of the four truths is there is suffering. That's the truth which is to be uh, comprehended, understood. There is a cause of suffering. And that is the truth, as it were, to be abandoned. There is an end to suffering and that is the truth to be realized. And there is a path to the end of suffering that is the truth to be uh, developed. (laughs) And again, we can really uh, see these uh, much more simply as the exploration of suffering and the roots of suffering and freedom and the roots of freedom. And the core finding is basically that our potential freedom reflects a deeper aspect of our nature than our suffering. So, good news. Something really to to work with. And I I was reflecting on this, kind of this uh, dual emphasis and reflecting on my own retreats. And it really... Uh, that emphasis, sometimes on suffering, sometimes on freedom, really parallels a lot my own experience of retreats. That some retreats are really about insight, understanding, the wow. Um, When I was first doing retreats, that's what I thought I would get to really quickly, get to the wow. And I thought in my naivete, fairly young, I thought suffering was for other people. Which itself is a core root of suffering. <laughs> which I later discovered not too long after that. And, um, but then there were some difficult retreats and one of the beauties of doing a lot of retreats is we really see the rhythm of opening sometimes more to suffering and sometimes more to freedom. And of course they're intermixed. But I know I had, I had one of my early retreats was mostly a fear retreat. And then sometime later I had an anger retreat where I was angry about 18 hours a day for 10 days. <laughs> yeah, it happens sometimes, you know. But I had another, I did, uh, once I did a two month retreat and the major theme of that retreat was working with uh, self-judgment and judgment of others. It wasn't the only theme, but it was there. You know? And one of the glories of retreats is that we get to actually explore some of these core experiences um, in depth. But it's helpful, it's helpful to see that there's a rhythm. You know, I was talking with one retreatant um, yesterday I think it was yesterday. How many days have we been here? <laughs> it, are we on the second week yet? I think it can feel like that. Um, let's see. I was talking with someone. Um, no, I think I was talking with someone on Friday, and and he was saying that for a number of years a guide for his retreats was a simple phrase that was actually given to him by John. It was, find your tears. And that guided him. And then on Friday he announced that a new theme had emerged. (laughs) And that is really, I think, an expression of freedom. That's how I would see it. And that theme is everything is love. Really, together, I think they express those um, two rhythms, really. So then I'd like to speak some first about suffering and the roots of suffering, and then about freedom and the roots of freedom. Maybe, let's see. Maybe just to give a short poem, which I I was uh, myself on retreat the first two weeks of February as part of the group here. And at the end of the retreat, I, I wrote a bunch of poems, but this is a short poem, which to me, is about how we hold everything. You know, the rhythms related to suffering and the rhythms related to freedom. That's just a a few lines. The forest, the sky, the stillness, the earth, hold my days with the tenderness of patience. And we need that uh, tenderness, that patience to to awaken to both suffering and freedom. So we know that in the life of the historical Buddha, awakening to suffering was pivotal. We have explored several times the theme of what are called the four messengers of um, old age, illness, death, and the possibility of being a practitioner as what the Buddha encountered when he went outside the walls of the palace, as it were, when he went outside of his protected life or his cocoon. And he, he, found, um, he found that there was suffering. And so the teaching is very much about um, opening up to suffering opening up to what he had not faced before. And the core teaching is really about the workability of suffering. That's what all of this is about. It's about that suffering is not something we need to flee from, but that it's workable with adequate guidance. In fact, there is a core teaching that we used for the two-month retreat two years ago called the Transcendental Dependent Arising. Normal Dependent Arising is what the Buddha came to insight about on the evening of his awakening, taken to be the core insight, which was about the, it was a more detailed analysis of the roots of suffering. And Transcendental Dependent Arising is really about the roots of freedom, and the starting point is when we have a different relationship to suffering. And the condition one, basically, when we're not trying to run away from it or hide from it or mask it and so forth. So there are a lot of different um, there are a lot of different ways that suffering is understood, you know, in, in the teachings, a lot of metaphors. It can be called bondage or can be linked with grasping and attachment. Sometimes it's talked about as entanglement, like we're caught in a you know, briar patch or something. And the, the core word that's used, as most of you know, is dukkha, which is a word that etymologically is related to an off center wheel. It's basically saying, we are all off center wheels. <laughs> and it's good to get used to it, basically. Um, it's a basic unsatisfactoriness. Uh, about all the phenomena of life. That nothing, no single phenomenon, provides lasting satisfaction. And the answer to the deepest happiness or lasting satisfaction is going to be not in finding this or that phenomenon or this or that state of mind or physical condition or way that our life is, but it's actually going to be in the freedom to relate without reactivity to every phenomenon. It's gonna be in our relationship to phenomena rather than the phenomena themselves. That's going to be the core teaching. Very simple in that sense. That freedom is in how we relate to what we experience, it's not in having this or that experience. And if we think that this or that experience will provide lasting happiness, that's dukkha or that reflects a misunderstanding or lack of understanding of dukkha. So dukkha is talked about in all sorts of ways. My favorite teaching that for me is the most direct way to talk about dukkha and suffering is a teaching called the Teaching of the Two Arrows, which I really love the teaching. It's really sort of look for every opportunity to express it. So, now is one. (laughs) It's a simple teaching, and I think it's actually, um, in a way, a more direct, down-to-earth, and clear teaching than we actually have in The Four Truths, my opinion. Um, Because it, it actually distinguishes between pain and suffering, which is quite important. And it's a teaching that we all, as part of the human condition, are, as it were, shot by an arrow. And we could call that the arrow of pain or the presence of the unpleasant at times. And so that can express itself as physical pain, different kinds of pain in the body or different kinds of uh, losses ways that there's something present which is unpleasant. On a physical level, it can express itself as emotional pain, as feeling different kinds of distress, different kinds of anger, and so forth, different kinds of sadness, grief, fear, and so forth we can have the first arrow manifest as a sense of unfairness or injustice. And we all have a certain portion of the first arrow. Everyone has it. I'm very delighted that in the the old texts of the Buddha, it was not censored out that the Buddha in his older age had headaches and a bad back. Isn't that great? <laughs> In a sense, <laughs> that, that it's there, right? It's not like, oh, get to be awakened and, you know, no more no more arthritis or something, you know? Um, was, he was a real person. And there was that unpleasantness. And so when it's spoken about that, this path is about um, overcoming suffering. It's not about overcoming pain, or it's not about about getting rid of pain. And so the first arrow is the fact that we're all shot in different ways, some, some of us more than others, with the first arrow, the arrow of pain. The teaching is that we, because, we've been shot by the first arrow, we react compulsively and we might say we shoot a second arrow at ourselves or we might say at others as if that would take away the pain of the first arrow. And so we can see pretty easily how that manifests that when we have physical pain, we contract around that pain. We tense around physical pain very often. Or we maybe go into mental gyrations to or we blame ourselves or we somehow wish that it wasn't there. And we can uh, that can be a large part of physical pain. And, and it's one of the bases, actually, for applying meditation to the medical field is that as much I've heard, as much as 80 or 90% of what patients experience as pain is not the original stimulus, but it's the reaction. It's the tensing. It's the second arrow. And we can see that and study that in ourselves. Now it's probably more evident with something like emotional pain or something uh, not going as we wish that we have a difficult interaction with someone, that takes five minutes, and it's something that we brood over for the next three days, or three years, or 30 years. You know? Or we have something difficult happen here, and it's maybe actually a short experience, and we have the mind proliferate, thoughts, other emotions, storylines, that can lead to a lot of further pain, emotional pain or physical pain. That's the shooting of the second arrow. You know, Or someone says something really mean to me or what seems to be mean, and I say something back mean to that person. That's the second arrow. You know, we can see that a great number of the conflicts in our world are about shooting the second arrow. So if we could somehow bring this teaching out into the world, it would have tremendous benefits. Because people hurt each other as if that would solve the problem. It's the logic of so many conflicts is, I have received pain, I think from you, therefore I will cause pain for you. You know, on whatever level, interpersonal conflict or international conflict, that's the logic at the bottom of it, at least on the simplest level. And so what is that teaching about, really? The teaching is that we learn how to be with the first arrow without shooting the second arrow. We learn to be with the unpleasant without being reactive. We learn to be with physical pain. You know, when it's there and when it's Present and when it's wise not, for example, to shift shift positions in in a sitting. And sometimes it is. Yeah. The general guideline we use is um, if it's causing damage, that's not pain to stay with. And one of the retreat criteria that we use for assessing it is basically if you know part of your body hurts. Fifteen minutes later or thirty minutes later, then it's not good to stay with that. I just thought I would fit that in here because it's a, it's an important part of this. We can stay with um, physical pain sometimes, but it's not about um, doing it all the time in any circumstances. So we can we can see how we shoot that second arrow, you know, or how we because of the pain we set up um, defense mechanisms so we won't feel pain. So we ward off the experience of pain from ourselves or from others or we have some wounds early in life and we set up all the defenses you know, of uh, denial, avoidance, uh, projection and so forth to avoid feeling certain kinds of pain. And the world is driven to a very high degree because we can't just stay with the first arrow without shooting the second arrow, and so we study that in ourselves. You know, we we see how we um, we see how we develop those those mechanisms. You know, so I think we can also see that um, you know there is there is pain really on so many levels. There is. There is the, um, you know, we shoot the second arrow in so many ways. We do it personally, we do it interpersonally, we do it, uh, we do it um, collectively. You know, I was, I was um, really thinking of the ways, really shooting the second arrow is really about how we react and you know, the different forms of reactivity, which are basically two, two core forms, which are those of, um, in terms of the reaction to the unpleasant, it's the pushing away, it's the compulsive pushing away. And yet, really, the kind of the other side of that teaching, which is the teaching that's actually expressed in the second truth, is that we also reactively grab hold of things And so I think these first two truths, it's interesting that they're expressed differently in some of these different teachings. The, really the first truth is that there's dukkha, and the second truth is that the the root of this suffering is the shooting of the second arrow, or you might say it's the reactivity. And it's actually, in the very uh, way we talk about um, the first and second arrow, we have actually the account of the second um, truth. That is, it's very important that there's a very basic distinction between the first arrow, which is pain, and the second arrow, which is suffering. We say the first arrow is a given, and the second arrow is optional. The second arrow, shooting the second arrow, can be eliminated. We can do that. We can do that more and more. As Sylvia said last uh, yesterday afternoon, she said, trouble in the mind is optional. You know? Another way of saying that came from, um, I sometimes teach in uh, Kentucky and where I, I lived for uh, four years. And when I was there, one of the last trips, um, a woman I worked with who works at a nursing home uh, sent me this message And it was about, uh, she said, when I volunteered at a nursing home, I met a woman in her early 50s who was in the later stages of MS. She had also had cancer and was also an amputee, right knee down. She had a very large sign on the wall near the end of her bed that read, pain is inevitable, suffering is an option. And uh, this is from Christie, who wrote this to me. She said, although she was bedridden, her mind was very active. She seemed to always have a roommate who was much older in his or her last days as well. She would share her spiritual beliefs. She believed that was her calling, and I'm sure in some way she was helpful. She was teaching the two hours teaching. She was teaching the nature of, of uh, the distinction between pain and suffering. You know, which is really something for us to, to explore. So a few further words about the second truth, which is about the, the roots of, of um, suffering or the roots of dukkha, it's often talked about as some kind of compulsive craving or attachment. And I think, again, thinking of the two arrows, uh, I think it's probably more, uh, kind of more of a broad understanding to see the... Roots of suffering as reactivity in the mind. Reactivity meaning some kind of compulsive grasping or pushing away. Aversion or grasping and attachment. In the text, put the particular focus is on the, on the um, attachment. That's, that's what we have in the teaching of the truth. So again, I find it very interesting that in the... Um, teaching of the two arrows, we have the emphasis on the pushing away, and the teaching of the four truths, we have an emphasis on the grabbing hold. But both, I think, are, are implied by this core teaching, if we would kind of express it in a more complete way. And we grasp after all sorts of things. We grasp after pleasure. We grasp after certain experiences. We grasp after having our own views gain hold. We grasp after opinions. You know, we grasp after ways of doing things. We grasp after dot, 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 you know. And ultimately in the, in the um, classical teachings, the, one of the fundamental areas that we grasp onto is the sense of self. So when we practice, we really study, we really study both pain and suffering. And so the invitation is, When something unpleasant arises, learn to be with it. Unpleasant sensation, unpleasant emotion, difficult thoughts. We try to stay with what's unpleasant. It often, in my experience, takes considerable staying with the unpleasant before we can begin to also get a sense of the roots or the reactivity. But we, we, in that sense, become also a student of where we, get, where we get hooked, where we're reactive. We become experts on our own reactivity. And one of the great benefits of a retreat is that we've got a lot of time and our reactivity is not shy in presenting itself. <laughs> That's one way to say it. Um, And so we really, uh, the essence of our practice is actually repetition. It's the repeated study of our own patterns. So I don't know when we really learn about a reactive pattern and learn not to go a certain route and be reactive, but we have to study the same pattern 500 or 1,000 or 2,000 times. I'm sorry. (laughs) It would be nice if, okay, you know, a weekend would take care of things, and I think it does take care of our very, very superficial patterns. But the deeper ones, and many of the ones that we look on, on re- at on retreat, take time, and we need that kind of uh, patience to really stay with the reactivity, even if it's been there a hundred or thousand times. And we also have to be very conscious of our reactivity to so much reactivity. That's kind of a um, stealth reactivity. Something in our mind says it doesn't count because it's about reactivity. It's not really reactivity. So we have to look for that. Look look out for that. So we study reactivity. We really have to look at how it works. And I was, look at how uh, grasping occurs. Study it. Look at how compulsive aversion occurs, study it in, you know, in the meditation hall, in the dining hall, just really everywhere. And it's really important to see how, how all of this works. You know, I was, I was thinking of um, one time when, with my friend, uh, close friend, and who's also a spirit rock teacher, Diana Winston, uh, we taught a class called uh, Greed Management very few people signed up. <laughs> it was like it was like five. <laughs> we had five students and two teachers, you know. So Diana and I were there because we were really interested in greed. You know, we had it was it was really fun. We had our our final exam was silent walking meditation through a newly opened uh, Bed Bath and Beyond. Um, <laughs> in El Cerrito, California. And it was, a, it was quite an experience, you know, because we were, you know, what I discovered was that there were enormous number of products that I didn't even know I had a need for. Um, which is another story. When you're, anyway, so, but what was really interesting was that we really just focused on what is greed like? This is part of the invitation to really study, to really note, you know, and to really explore in some depth. And we found, and this is an important part of really looking at reactivity, we found that um, there were some qualities of greed, which I think are true of a lot of kinds of reactivity. We found that there, with greed, there was a kind of self-centeredness, you know, as basically my desires matter more than others. And sometimes, it was even to the extent that others' desires don't even matter, just my desires matter, that greed has that quality. Another one was, and this is where we can see that reactivity uh, in the forms of uh, greed and hatred are closely linked with delusion or ignorance. So we could see in studying greed that when one is wrapped up in greed or grasping, there's typically an ignorance of consequences. You know, there's really not a sense of this will lead to this or this will be the consequences. And there's a lack of knowledge of other people and their needs. You know, there's sort of an obliviousness to other, to other people. Um, another aspect of delusion that's there in reactivity typically is, and this was very much there in greed, is a sense that this will make me happy. Really having this will make me happy. You can study that when that appears in the retreat context, you know. One of the, I I mean, I don't need to say anything about the dining hall, do I? (laughs) It's It's a great place to study. I mean, it's all, it manifests in all sorts of ways. So we really, we really study the, we really study both the experience of pain and how it tends to lead to reactivity so when we study it closely, we can sometimes be with the unpleasant, let's say a physical sensation, and we can feel the mind starting to be reactive or just going right into reactivity. And sometimes we can feel, feel those just beginnings of reactions, which is when the mind gets more quiet, we can experience the beginnings of reactivity or the beginnings of grasping, where we can notice it happening and we don't feed it or we don't... Um, buy into it in the same way. So just a few further practices, and then, then I'll start talking about freedom. That just really naming that there's suffering can be really important. Just really naming that it's occurring. This is where the labeling can be, or noting can be very simple and helpful to, to name, there is pain happening right now, or there is suffering happening. I once taught, uh, I taught college for about uh, seven years once, in a past life, I think. And uh, one, one year I was teaching Buddhist uh, philosophy, and there were a lot of members of the football team of that particular school. And they brought the language of dukkha into the locker room, and they would report that everyone would be saying, oh, that's dukkha, oh, that's dukkha. Oh, that's Duca And Duca. they were just naming it, you know. And they, they invited me to their games and I had never been so close. It was, it was really scary. They were like these people <laughs> just running at each other at high speed, you know, and colliding. You know, I sometimes would watch football on TV, but I never imagined it was so violent. It was, anyway, that's another story. But, it was, but they would name they would name Duca, And I think it really helped. I think probably some of them um, weren't on the football team the next year. I don't know. Um, so we, we stay with it you know? and here it's really important when we're studying reactivity to go back to the instructions from this morning that when we're studying reactivity we really have to know the distinction between being mindful and present and noticing reactivity and being caught in it or being overwhelmed by it or being stuck in it and when we're stuck in it or caught in reactivity it's better just to cut it to come back to balance in some way. We can use metta as an antidote. We can um, just basically sometimes pull out of it because it's not helpful just to stay lost in something. And we can sometimes think, oh, I kinda know it's there, therefore this must be mindfulness. No, it's being lost. And that's a really, really crucial distinction for our practice. We need to know when we're really tracking something and if we're lost in it, we pull out, we apply an antidote, and then when we're ready, we can come back, you know, when it's there and when there is some mindfulness. In being mindful and present to reactivity, we are actually already manifesting freedom. So it's in a way the very practice of mindfulness and presence brings in the third truth, brings in the freedom. That there's something in being present and mindful about something, about reactivity, which is not reactivity. Being mindful of anger is not anger. It's almost on the the level of the brain there's like, it's as it were, if you think of the reactivity as an old neural pathway, you know, that we really easily go down, and that we've been going down for a long time, what we're learning is the possibility of when the original stimulus that triggers the reactivity and triggers that old neural pathway, what we're learning is that there can be a different response in which we don't simply go down that old neural pathway, And we start by bringing in mindfulness and what we're effectively doing on the level of the brain is we are setting up a parallel neural pathway. And what that means, and that's really the basis for freedom and the basis for, it's actually a different experience. When we're mindful of reactivity, we're not lost in reactivity. It's really important to know that. And it really is the, the uh, the link with freedom. Because one way we can really talk about freedom is that we are not caught in the compulsive, reactive condition patterns leading to suffering. That we are not hooked by, we are not hooked and caught in suffering. That's one way of talking about what freedom is. One way really of clearly seeing that even in that moment of mindfulness, there are aspects of freedom. And in a way, what we do in our practice is that we walk a path, and this is the fourth truth is the the path of practice. The third truth is the truth that um, being beyond suffering is possible. We can say it in different ways, that peace is possible, that freedom is possible, that freedom from our old patterns is possible, that freedom from shooting the second arrow is possible. And it's possible on a personal level, it's possible on an interpersonal level, it's possible on a social level. Because you know, one thing that I have found is that um, these teachings are not just about the inner world, they're about how we are with others, and they're about the social world. And that when we see that, really the practice is everywhere. You know, so that here we're in a period of intensive training but it's like we bring that out into the world. And the principles of reactivity and shooting the second arrow and being with the first arrow are the same in all the parts of our lives. I just wanted to say that because it's really, um, we're doing intensive training focus on, on our own being right now. But the horizon is much bigger, ultimately. So freedom is talked about in, in these ways, freedom from reactivity, a lack of greed, hatred, and delusion, a lack of clinging and grasping. You know, the, as Sylvia quoted, I think, from one of the texts, the line, their hearts through non-clinging were liberated. So in the moment of non-clinging, non-reactivity, there is freedom. This is from a poem by Rilke. This is about that sense of freedom, both in the sense of non-clinging and then expanded further because the moment of non-clinging, we experience it, and then our practice is to keep on experiencing it in many, many moments and to stabilize that sense of non-clinging further and further, deepening and deepening. That's what this is about. That's what this is about. This is from Rilke, it's a poem called Buddha in Glory. Center of all centers, core of cores, almond, self enclosed and growing sweet, all this universe to the furthest stars, all beyond them is your flesh, your fruit. Now you feel how nothing clings to you. Your vast shell reaches into endless space and there the rich thick fluids rise and flow illuminated in your infinite peace. A billion stars go spinning through the night blazing high above your head, but in you is the presence that will be when all the stars are dead. So not being caught in the reactivity. You know, that, that's a very beautiful and expansive sense in the poem. It can also be down to earth, that freedom is being able to respond rather than react to each moment. The ability to be responsive, not being hooked, not being driven, not being compulsively conditioned for our mind, our body, our heart to go one way or the other. The great Zen teacher, I believe of about the ninth or 10th century was asked, what is the meaning of enlightenment or what is the meaning of freedom? You know, and people were waiting for, I think, a metaphysical answer, you know, like, freedom is the cosmic interpenetration of self and other in a glowing manifestation of the inseparability of inner and outer, self and other, and all objects. But he didn't say that, (laughs) you know, he, his answer, what is the nature of enlightenment? He said, enlightenment is appropriate response. And that's our practice also. Being able to respond moment by moment is our practice. That's it. We could, we could stop all the discussion of the 37 wings at this point. That's, that's, that's kind of it. And so we start by looking at reactivity. We start opening to the ability just to be with reactivity, with presence. And then as we follow the path of mindfulness, it opens us up deeper into a deeper and deeper sense of freedom. You know, in the core teachings of the Buddha, the ultimate nature of freedom is called Nibbāna, It's understood as the cooling out, it's said, of the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. And it's simply present in a lot of the texts. It's understood as not something we produce, but simply something that's, as it were, covered over by our conditioning. And so the practice to uncover the deeper levels of freedom actually is about our learning not to be so reactive, involved, and doing. It's more of a sense of of presence that we follow. You know? There's a beautiful line from Achan Amaro that um, I really learned from Sylvia. It's really one of her favorite lines. It's a practice instruction for expanding our sense of freedom. It goes like this. Let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the body and the mind. Only attend to that which disturbs this natural ease and peace. Let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body. To just be there with that sense of presence, and I often say lines to myself that help me have that quality of presence, that quality of just being able to be there with ease, to let go of my constructions or my attempt to do something or have my meditation be a certain way and just to come into a more basic quality of presence which really follows from our mindfulness. And I, I use some lines that um, I love and I, when I'm on retreat I often repeat them like, I don't know, 20 or 30 times a day when I'm practicing. And the lines are from um, a 16th century Tibetan text by Dagpotashi uh, Namgyal, and they go like this Open like the sky, pervasive like the earth, unshakable like a mountain, shining like a flame, lucid like a crystal. It's really inviting that uh, deeper sense of presence, which, which in the text is often linked with the nature of nibbana or the nature of the deeper freedom. It's a quality of presence in which there's just this basic awareness, ultimately freed even from the sense of self and other and object and time and construction, that our practice points in that direction. And we have glimpses at times of that. So it's very important actually to notice those moments of freedom when they're there. Notice the moments of just being mindful of the first arrow. And there's freedom there. And it's very helpful to know that, to know that there's freedom in that moment. Maybe not total freedom, but there's an aspect of freedom. There's a way that we're not, we're not simply caught, not simply stuck. So we awaken to suffering, we awaken to freedom. We awaken to the dynamics of suffering. We awaken to freedom increasingly. And you know, we practice this path, the Eightfold Path, which leads to freedom. You know, And when the fruit of the awakening to suffering we could call compassion. And the fruit of the awakening to freedom, and I think also of suffering, we can call wisdom. It's understood in that way. And I want to end by bringing in a third aspect. You know, And I've been really uh, reminded of this uh, continually by what I've learned of the Vietnamese tradition in the 20th century. And I learned this particularly from a friend named Thich Minh Duc, who was a Buddhist monk for a number of years, a Dharma heir of Thich Nhat Hanh, and became very good friends. We did a lot of, lot of things together. And he told me that in the starting, in, I think in the 1930s or 40s, when there was um, war and then increasingly uh, conflict with the French, sort of an anti-colonial struggle, the Vietnamese Buddhists said, wisdom and compassion, very good, those have been the two wings of the bird of the, the Dharma for 1,000 years in Vietnam. But with the current conditions, we also need courage. And so they said, we want to speak now of the three, I don't know if it's three wings, That's a, well, 37 wings is possible, then three is okay. <laughs> but it was the third aspect, and they said, we need to talk about wisdom, com- compassion, and courage. And bring that in, it's really, I like to think wisdom is the quality of the mind and compassion, we might say, is that of the heart and courage is that of the body. You know, and really the body being able to stay there and be present and to, and to, to act ultimately. So I wanna just close with um, a few lines about courage because that's really, um, we don't talk about it so much, but it's really important and necessary for our practice. You know, it's the courage, the patience, the steadfastness, which really makes possible this awakening process. So three, three statements about courage. This is from uh, Sayadaw Achantejaniya, who's a contemporary Burmese teacher. He says, to know reality, you have to be courageous to know reality, you have to be courageous. And this is from the poet uh, William Butler Yeats. It takes more courage to examine the dark corners of your own soul than it does for a soldier to fight on a battlefield. It takes more courage to examine the dark corners of your own soul than it does for a soldier to fight on a battlefield. Then I wanna close with um, Mary Oliver some lines from a poem, which is a poem really about uh, contemplating death. And I'm gonna read part of it, which, which she comes to. When she contemplates death, this is where, what she comes to. And it, it ends with a, a statement about courage, and that's what I want to end with. Therefore I look upon everything as a brotherhood and sisterhood, and I look upon time as no more than an idea, and I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and as singular. And each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending, as all music does, towards silence. And each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. Thank you very much for your um, attention. And may the uh, practice of awakening to suffering and to freedom continue, thank you.